0: Haggai 2, every one of us that is in a salvation relationship with Christ and we are growing in our sanctification with Him, all of us desire to live in the blessing of God. Now when we speak of His blessing, we need to make sure that we understand the biblical manner in which um, that is expressed and it's not an earthly one. It doesn't always guarantee that we're going to get the stuff of this earth, that there's going to... We're going to live in the best place. We're going to have the best things. That's not what it's talking about. And the reason that's important for for me to point out to us this morning is that we always have to guard our heart in regard to the blessing. Because if we would define blessing, we want it to mean comfort and ease. And, you know, when trouble comes, can it just be really short and brief and we can move on with our lives? Sometimes blessing of God means more cash. Give me more cash, more more opportunity for these, this thing and that thing. Now God blesses, we know that, um, but we need to make sure that we understand what it is and we will see today um, a good perspective of that. But how are we, as His children, to receive the true blessing that the Bible defines? What is it that God asks and desires of us as we invest our lives? And a very important question that we will deal with today is this, Is God most concerned with our activity, what we do within the kingdom, with the gospel? Or is God more concerned over the condition of our heart? So let me walk through where we've been in Haggai before we get to Haggai 2, verse 10, and we'll be in 10 through 19 today. So 500,000 were taken away under Nebuchadnezzar, went to Babylon. Eventually the Persians come to power. Some stay in Babylon, some are taken to Persia. In time, Persia has a different philosophy about things. They allow people to still be under their control, but to go back to their homeland and to even worship some of the gods or the religions that they have. And so, under King Darius, in his um, he are actually first um, Cyrus and then under Darius, he allows some of the Jewish exiles to come back. And so, this first wave under the leadership of Zerubbabel. They come back, and there are 50,000 of them, and they come to Jerusalem, and it is still just ransacked. The temple is gone. There is no foundation to the temple. The walls around Jerusalem have been torn down. It is still just a literal mess while they were gone for the 70 years, and they come back with great exuberance and excitement about seeing the nation restored once again. And so one of the first things they do is they lay the foundation of the temple, and then they set up the altars To begin doing the sacrifices. So, this is kind of more out in the open in a sense. There are no walls that were there before with Solomon's temple. And so, the sacrifices are taking place. Well, about two years into the working on the temple and getting things established, there is a Samaritan opposition that arises. They send word to King Darius about what is happening and taking place. And literally, for the next 14 years, there is no work on the temple at all. And what happens is the people naturally went back to focusing on their own lives when one of the first things that they were supposed to do is to rebuild the temple to get the worship because that was the lifeblood of the nation where they would come for all the festivals and all the focus and the sacrifices. And so as the temple lie in ruins, they began to work on their own houses. And they began to say to one another in chapter 1, it's not time. And basically what was behind that was all of this trouble, this opposition that was there, it must mean that it's not the right time for us to rebuild the temple, so we will wait. And so they began to well panel their houses and make sure that their houses were okay. They began to focus on their crops and began to focus on their livestock and their grapes and all of these things to the great neglect. And for 14 years, they had neglected the work of the temple. And their, their selves and their own economic gain was the first important thing in their lives. And one day, God's had enough of it, and He speaks to Haggai, and Haggai goes to the people. And from the end of August until December the 18th, Haggai has four messages for the people, this remnant that has come back to remind them of what they needed to do. And so Haggai tells them... God's not pleased with what's happening and taking place because um, we have focused on ourselves and we have not rebuilt the temple. And because of that, God has placed a judgment on us. And God literally tells through Haggai to the people in chapter 1 that he has withheld their crops from flourishing because they have neglected the worship and the rebuilding of the temple and they've made themselves the center of their lives to the great neglect of of that, And so Haggai speaks to the people, it motivates them, they begin the work and the process of rebuilding the temple. And then the second message comes from Haggai to the people. So they are about, a, they're about 30 or 40 days into to getting back into the work of the temple again, and their hearts sink within them because they recognize as they begin to put stone after stone on top of one another, they recognize that all of the gold that was there when Nebuchadnezzar came, it was all gone now. All of the great glory of Solomon's temple, it's not there. And they realize in the first part of chapter 2, from two, um, uh, verse 1 to verse 9, they realize this is not going to be Solomon's temple. And there were some who were there who remembered what Solomon's temple was like. They had remained alive, probably young children, and were taken away to Babylon. And now they have come back with this first wave of people, and they see what they're building this rebuilding of the temple, and it is not going to be the grandeur and the glory of Solomon's temple, and their hearts sink within them. And they think this, and it happens with our lives, When we made this application a couple of weeks ago. We look at our past, the glory of our past, the glory days, what used to be, Boy, boy, if I could just go back to that day, boy, you know, when I was skinnier, or I could run faster, or whatever the case may be, if I could just go back to those days, and we, we have this glorious look on the past and we think because it seems like the future and the present are not going to be that great if I could go back there. And so our hearts think, sink within us thinking the future just doesn't hold much in our lives. And so they got caught up in that and their hearts sank. And, and God through, through Haggai comes along and says, hey, listen, I want to remind you of something. I'm about to do something with this new temple that I didn't do with Solomon's temple. As a matter of fact, What's going to happen with this new temple that you're building is going to have a greater glory to it than Solomon's. Now, it's not going to have the gold. It's not going to have the size. It's not going to be all that. But it's going to be something more unique, more powerful, more special than what Solomon did. So they begin to work, and here's what God told them, that my glory will be in this one. So this temple that they begin to rebuild and get back to the task of is the very temple that Jesus himself will step into. He will teach in that temple. He will bring healing to a blind man in that temple. He will confront the Pharisees there. He will pray. He will point out incredible truth. So he tells this group of people, I'm going to do something in this work that you're doing um, that wasn't connected with Solomon's temple. Now, it would be another 550 years before Jesus steps into this temple, but he will step into this temple. And in his great glory of the Messiah, the long awaited Messiah, will come. So, so the second message was get back to the work and be reminded it's not about, is it the fanciest building? doesn't have to be the fanciest building. I'm going to do something in this that I didn't do before, so you do the work and you trust me. By the way, let me tell you this they didn't have the resources. 500,000 of them left, 50,000 of them have returned. They don't have the workers, they don't have the experience, they don't have the education and the skill and all of this. But you know what God does? God does God things. So you know what God does? There's a pagan king named Darius who's living in Persia, modern-day Iran. And he hears about what's happening as they begin to rebuild. And guess who funds the rebuilding of this new temple? This pagan king named Cyrus. Cyrus or Darius, excuse me. And he gets the backing of and he sends the materials from all over the places that he is in charge of, and God does that, and he allows them to get the materials they need to eventually complete the temple. Well, we come to the text today, and it's the third message of Haggai, and there's an issue of this with the exiles. When they returned, they came back, I think, with the right mindset. We want to come back, we want to rebuild the city, we want to rebuild the temple. But they didn't come back, watch this, listen, it's a subtle thing, they didn't come back with a heart of repentance. They got back to doing stuff that God was into, but they didn't come back and cry out to Him and say to Him, God, our fathers failed, we have failed, we've come back, we've allowed, um, we've allowed ourselves to get caught up in the Samaritan opposition, and they didn't fully come back completely engaged, and now they're engaged, rebuilding the temple. But there's an underlying issue in those 16 years that they have been back that they have failed to do, and that is to confess their sin and make sure that as they're rebuilding the temple, that their hearts have been consecrated in holiness to God. And so this third message deals with this idea of, is the cause of God more important to him, Or is a consecrated life more important to Him? Because you look at our world today, unbelievably broken. We know that. Incredibly broken. So many needs out there in the world today. So many things that people are struggling with, from family issues to health issues. There is um, orphans. There is human trafficking. There is all kinds of just broken, devastating things in the world. And so is God more concerned about those things or is God more concerned about, foundationally, a consecrated life? And so the people are rebuilding the temple, but there's an issue with their heart, and that's what this third message is about. Now, let, let me tell you this before we read the text. Let me tell you about the, the context of the timing of this third message from Haggai. His first message, I believe, was August the 29th of 520 B.C. Um, this is the third message, and it takes place on December the 18th. 520 bc we're going to read in a moment it's going to say the ninth month of the 24th day the ninth month in the jewish calendar is december but the 24th day is not christmas eve this is not christmas eve it's talking about here it's actually the 19th their calendar was different than ours and so this is december the 18th this third message that comes from haggai and it's a really really important one so let me tell you the context If you remember from chapter 1, God says, Listen, I've sent a drought so that you don't have fruitful crops. I've withheld things. I've allowed hell to come to destroy your crops. You thought that your grapes were going to be this much, and they haven't been that. And all of it was come from a judgment of God that He had withheld blessing from them because He was not the center of their lives. So now, the rains come in Jerusalem, in that part of Israel, in the middle of October. It begins to soften the ground they began to plow they began to plant so now in december the 18th the seed has been put into the ground the fruit trees are still barren it's the harvest season the season of growth is about to come the people go to their barns and look in their barns and say we we barely made it enough to be able to get this year we probably likely they were borrowing from other people and things of that nature and the barn is empty there's no seed in there and they're waiting December the 18th, and wondering, is this going to be another year where we are under the judgment of God? We're doing what God told us to do, great cause, we're rebuilding the temple. As a matter of fact, in their generation, there was no generation doing anything more noble than rebuilding the temple. So their cause was the greatest on the face of the earth, no matter where people were living was the greatest cause that they were part of, rebuilding the temple of God, where God was going to allow the Messiah to step into greater glory into that temple. But they're wondering, is there going to be enough food? Is there going to be enough crops to be able to get through? And they look at the fields, and they look at things, and they're wondering where things are. And God has one more thing He's got to deal with their hearts about, and it's really important. So let's look. Haggai 2, verse 10. Let's read through 19, and let's see what He has for us this morning. So on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. So there's a question that the priests need to answer for the people. Another voice speaking, verse 12, If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with the Dutch body touches any anything, like, like the wine, the food, or the oil, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, It does become unclean. And then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. That 's a strong statement. They are rebuilding the temple, but God's not pleased with their work because there's an inner issue in reality that hasn't been dealt with, and so God says it is with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Look at fifteen. Now then, consider from this day onward before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? How was it going? you 're rebuilding? But you're neglecting your heart. How's it going? How'd you fare? When one came to a heap of of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hell. And yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Now consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider... Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. So let's talk about this just for a moment. Let's walk through the text. It's an important question. What does God require of us? Is it activity? Is it deep investment in things? Or is he concerned about the heart? And I believe 10 through 19 talks about that God is most concerned. Hear me, church. Hear me. God is much more concerned about the condition of our heart than it is whether or not we're investing in causes that God is into. That are ordained from him. See, God wants this. God doesn't want us just to do a bunch of stuff and then live however we want to live. He wants holiness connected to the activity, right? He's always wanted that. He doesn't say this, okay, go go and involve yourself in something that's really important, like family ministry or something like orphan ministry. Do that, but it doesn't matter about the condition of your heart. You can be sinful. You can neglect what's right. You can live unrighteous. But as long as the cause is important, then that's okay. And so the question in the heart of this, and again, this book is so relevant. 520 B.C., these words were spoken. We have something permeating the American church today and it's called the social gospel. Where it's, as long as we're doing good deeds and things like that, we don't really have to share the gospel. And it permeates, particularly the younger generation of church leaders that are coming up. This is kind of the mindset of some of that. As long as we're doing stuff in God's name, that it's okay and there's a neglect to it. Like this, I just spent a week in Ukraine. Loving orphans. If all I did this week was love orphans and did not tell them the gospel, then I did wrong. What orphans need more than clothing is they need the gospel. And so this is this is rising up with the younger generation of leadership in the church, and I'm not being hard on them from the standpoint of of um, of of not being hopeful, I, I, I hope that there will be a recognition that the gospel first and from the gospel, watch this, all of those things flow out of that. Gospel first. Gospel demands us to care for widows, to care for orphans, to care for the poor, to feed the hungry. We've, we've put it upside down. We've, Turned it upside down, and that's that's where this people were. And God says, as you're rebuilding the temple, you need to know this. Um, I have a requirement of you, and the requirement that I have of you is not the great cause, but it's your heart. As you rebuild the temple, your heart has to be right. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter fifty-one just for a moment. I want to point out a couple of things, and then we'll come back to Haggai 2 There's some great things to learn from David. If you remember, um, David um had sent his army away he had remained in jerusalem he should have been with the army late at night he's a man he's got idle time he's restless he goes out on the roof of the palace of the king and he looks down and he sees a woman uh, bathing he calls for her she comes he has an adulterous relationship with her Um, she gets pregnant and david um, orchestrates things to murder her husband actually calls him back to Jerusalem so that he can kind of cover up his sin. All the while, David knows, and God knows what's happening. Nobody else knows but David and Bathsheba and some of the servants have gone to get her, and nobody has said anything, and David is going to the temple, making sacrifices. He's doing all the things that you need to do, but he's got a sinful heart. He's running the nation, but his heart is, is wrong. And God speaks to Nathan and the prophet, and Nathan comes, and he confronts David. And David is broken over his sin. He recognizes what has happened and taken place and what's there. And then all of a sudden, here's what, here's what happens in Psalm chapter 51. By the way, let me, let me just point this out before we read this. Um, these psalms were written as songs. They sang these. So what's, what's, the, what's the honesty of David here? David has sinned greatly. He's been confronted, he confesses his sin, he asks God for great mercy, for God to cleanse him and to do this work in his heart. And then he writes a song about it because he wants to teach the nation, don't do what I did. And they would sing this song of confession, this honest confession about what happened with David um, in this. Look at verse 1. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. David knows something about God. God is full of mercy. God has something that he can give. And what a sinner who's been caught in a sin, has just been broken over it, needs to come to God and say, God, I need you to do something in my heart that I can't do. I need your mercy to fall upon me again. And so he knows that God is a great mercy that pours out this mercy to sinners. And so David asks God what he knows is available from God. Look at verse 4. Not only does David ask for mercy, But deeply and honestly, he acknowledges his sin before God. He doesn't try to sugarcoat it. He doesn't underestimate it or he doesn't blame somebody else or something else. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And because it's that, David says, so that God is justified in his words and he's blameless in his judgment because it's God who we've sinned against. And so when God brings the judgment upon David, whatever God wants to say, whatever judgment God brings, it's right because David has sinned against God. And so he just honestly says, I have sinned against you. And then look at 13. David's genuine repentance is seen not only in his sorrow and his brokenness, but he earnestly asks for the opportunity to teach others what he has learned from his error so that they will not buy into it as well and fall prey to it. So in verse 13, it says this, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Now go to 16. David teaching us about how do we get things right when things have been wrong. For God, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. And you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, David, listen, church. David sees the natural human tendency is to try to settle the account with God. Extra time, extra talent, extra money in the offering box. Extra, oh, I need to serve, I need to, I need to, I need to do more, and, and that will balance out things. And, and many people, listen to this, many people live in such a way that they spend their lives trying to appease God, and it's not the way it works. And so David could have done, boy, he'd been making sacrifices. God, if I make another, how about another burnt offering? How about another burnt offering? How about another sacrifice, God? And God's just saying this, no, will you come to me with your heart that just says this? I recognize God within me. Something's not right, and I need you to do your work. I need you to cleanse me with hyssop. I need you to create in me a clean heart. I need you to return to me the joy of my salvation. And so David models for us what the people should have learned, and that's the case always with me I don't know about you you may have mastered this but I sometimes just don't seem to learn from watching and reading the mistakes of others I just seem to find myself in the same thing that they're doing so this group that's come back they have been sent away because of sin and they watch they didn't come back to the land they came back with the right motivation the right emotions to the right city to the right cause but they came back and didn't lay their heart down and say, God, break me. We have sinned against you only, and we need you to do it. And so watch this. They start to work on the temple, and then they stop. And for 14 years, to the neglect of the temple, they focus on themselves, they go back to things, and they think, well, God, bless us, bless us, bless. And God says, no, I'm not going to do that. I must be the center of your life. I bring blessing to obedience. And they just think we can just go on and on and on. And God's going to be okay with this. And God has brought judgment. He sent hell. He sent drought. He sent um, other mildew and, and mold. And, it, and it's robbed their crops. And, and God says in the text through Haggai, I did all this and you didn't return to me. You didn't get it. You didn't get it that I bless obedience. And so your heart has to get right. So I want to say to us, church, hear me today. God's requirement of us is not foundationally more activity, more ministry, more programs. God's foundational thing is for us to come to him and say, God, I need you, I am broken, only you can fix me, only you make things right, only you open the door to allow me to run away from temptation. God, I come humbly before you and I acknowledge it's not my name, it is your name. And that's what God requires of us. David says, a broken and contrite heart. And so these people come back, watch, oh, don't hear this. This is good stuff today, good stuff today. They are doing a God-sized God-ordained, God-pleasing thing. They were rebuilding the temple. But they're going about it wrong. Not because the plans were wrong, because their hearts weren't right. And God wants our heart to be right. And so, in 11 and 12, Haggai says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. Ask the priests what the law says about Two important things that are going on within the nation. So look at 11 and 12. So thus says the Lord, Ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and he touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any other kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, No, it doesn't. So watch what happens. So you go to the temple. Sacrifice is made. There's an offering that's there. It's been made to God. There's meat. It's, it's holy because it's been consecrated to God. And you are to take it and put it in your shirt. You got a T-bone right here. And you're walking back from the temple. And you're going back home. And you take it back home. And you pull it out of, the, out of, out of your shirt. And it touches some bread. It touches the oil. And because it's holy, because it's been sacrificed to God, does that holiness and righteousness transfer to the bread and the oil and the wine? And the priests say, oh, Are you kidding? You don't transfer holiness that way. And then he asks the question, well, well, what about if somebody goes and touches a dead body, which the law speaks about, that there were some things you had to do if, if, that was a, if that happened and took place, and then they came in, home and they touched their bread after they touched a dead body, would it make the bread unclean? And the priest said, yeah, it does. There is a transfer of the unrighteousness to that that corrupts things, and so yeah, So there's two illustrations here that are really important to see. So the priests answer correctly to say, no, uh, holiness is not contagious. It's not transferable like that. So let's let's talk about this just for a moment. (coughs) Flu season is around the corner. Aren't you excited? It's coming. You school teachers know about this really well. So you come to church, if you get the flu, come to church on a Sunday morning and we're going to gather 10 people who aren't sick and we're going to all breathe on you. We're going to put you in the middle of the circle and we're going to breathe on you from our good health into your bad health. Or are you going to get well? No. So this is what Haggai's saying. This is what God's is saying. He's saying, listen, you, you, don't, you don't get well, watch, you don't get well from your sin just by being in a great cause like rebuilding the temple or a, around a bunch of righteous people. Righteousness doesn't get transferred that way from other Christians. I love Mark Verlander. one of the godliest people that I know. I don't need Mark Verlander's godliness. I need Jesus's. But his godliness refines my life and, and, and points me and reminds me of what's good and what's right. And so, so I don't catch godliness from Mark. I had to sleep in a bed with him twice last week. So because he's godly, did that nearness get passed across the bed under my covers to me? No, no, doesn't work that way. But if you are dirty and you touch something else, you do transfer the dirtiness and the unrighteousness. So watch, God calls us third, secondly, always calls us to examine the word, and then God communicates this very clearly he values the condition of our heart over the cause that we may be invested in and that's what was taking place with the people so i want to talk about that just for a moment sin contaminates everything around it and we foolishly deceive ourselves if we conclude that we can come before god and please him without first consecrating our lives in holiness before him, And so over and over, the Scripture, I believe, stresses this point, that He will not bless spiritual activity or sacrifices that do not come from a life that is surrendered to Him. Well, I want to start a ministry, and I want to start this ministry, and I want to do something, but I'm going to, I'm going to watch pornography all the time, and I want God to bless what I'm doing. I want, to, I want to start this, I'm going to get involved in this, but I'm going to abuse alcohol, and I'm going to do this, and so, but I want God's blessing. And I, just, I want to say to us honestly, because it's what Haggai says this morning, God does not bless that, and He's not going to bless that. He blesses righteousness. That's what this was about. Righteousness needed to come. We had none. You couldn't find any here outside of God. And so Christ came, the righteousness of God, And so in salvation, we've talked about this, we get His righteousness, He takes our sinfulness, and there's a transfer into the accounts about that. And the beauty of that is incredible. And so so for us, we need to, to remember that That we need to walk in righteousness no matter what the case is. As we do things for God, He demands righteousness. Not do whatever you want to do and I'm okay with it. As long as the cause is great enough, then you just live however you want to live. God wants a, a heart that is consecrated honestly before Him. So listen to this. It's the third thing this morning. God values the condition of our heart over the cause. The cause no matter how great it is, is never greater than a consecrated life. It's not greater. And this is so valuable to hear, Know that God is not gonna bless Christianity, no matter how noble it is, even the rebuilding of the temple, if the people and the cause are not walking in righteousness. And that's the point of this third message. Their hearts were steeped and disobedience. There'd been no brokenness. They came back, rebuilt the foundation, got discouraged, and all these things that were happening, and taking place. Now, I want to talk about this just for a moment. I mentioned it earlier, but I think it, it bears mentioning again. I just spent a week in Ukraine and a just place in the middle of nowhere in Ukraine with twenty seven orphans and about 30 to 35 kids from this village came every day and and uh, the brokenness in that orphanage is unbelievable. Nobody's coming to get any of those 27 kids. Nobody's on the agenda. Nobody's coming to get them. They're going to live there until they orphan out of the place and they leave. Nobody's coming. And the brokenness there is absolutely staggering. I, um, I think it was Wednesday night. I was... Turned the lights out and mark and i were not sleeping in the same bed anymore we had separate beds in a new place and he had gone to sleep and i'm sitting up in the corner of my room and and god's just dealing with me not over something wrong sinful in my heart but god just allowing me to to sense his heart for what was taking place at that orphanage just brokenness that you cannot fathom anybody like lice in the room you like lice these little kids got lice in their hair and you got to hold them and, and uh, that's love. You got to do that. And I was reminded that even though I was there and even though I'm standing before you today, that I went and did something that I think is near and dear to God's heart because James 1 talks about it. He says, you want to talk about pure religion? It's remembering orphans and widows. And so let me ask you a question this morning. Because I went on a trip and I lived on some kids and I shared the gospel with them, did righteousness get transferred to me because I was a part of a cause that I think God is into? No. My heart needed to be right as I served, and that's when righteousness comes. When I walk in obedience that I love those kids, and I did so out of a heart of of wanting them to know Jesus, not just love them, Their greatest need was not to get rid of lice. Do they need to get rid of lice? Yeah, they do. Do they need clothing? Do they need to eat? Absolutely, they do. But what they need is the gospel. So hear me today. Human trafficking dominates the the, the world today. Little girls, ages sometimes as early as nine, are trafficked in the sex trade from places like Nepal and India and, and some of these places, even in Ukraine as well. And they're trafficked and use and abuse. Is that called cause near and dear to God's heart? Absolutely it is. But here's the danger. That the causes that are near and dear to God's heart become the sole focus without ever telling anybody that there's a God who created them and does have a plan for them in the midst of the chaos and the yuck and the slime and the evil and the darkness of the world. There's a God who loved them in such a way that He came, that He he took that unrighteousness and put it in His account, and it became sin for us on the cross. And so for us today, hear me, younger generation, hear me. We're going to be gone one day, and y'all are going to be the leaders of the American church. It's not the causes of the gospel that should drive the church. The gospel drives the church. And when the gospel drives the church, the church meets the needs of the poor and the orphans and the widows. And we have flipped that. And so there are people, churches, who are involved in causes, and they never share the gospel. And this is what was taking place in Haggai. Watch. They're rebuilding the temple without ever repenting. And so so, so Haggai says, hey, ask the priests this. Just because you're doing a holy act, does that make you holy? Does Does that rebuilding of the temple righteousness get transferred onto you? No. But here's what you're doing. You're coming every day building stone upon stone, and you're dragging dead corpses and unrepentant heart into this temple. And if you can't, David says it in Psalm chapter 24, he says this, Who may stand in the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? Only he who has a, a pure heart and a clean heart can do so. Watch this. So if you can't stand in the temple when it's intact with an unrighteous heart, how in the world can you build it with an unrighteous heart? And so he's saying, listen, as you rebuild this, even though it's a great cause, your heart has to be clean and pure. Do you remember what Jesus said? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? They will see God. They will see God. What? They're rebuilding the temple in this great cause, and they can't see God. Ezra 3.3 tells us they get back, they lay the foundation, they put the altars up. They're making sacrifices, and God's not pleased with what they're doing, and they've been doing it for 16 years now. Two years when they first get back, now 14 years of delay and they're doing all this and God's not pleased with it because they didn't come back and say, God, we confess our sin. And they attribute it probably, I'm having some bad luck, whatever the case is. And God says, no, I want to tell you why when you go and you want 50 vats of wine and you only get 20, I want to tell you why, because I'm not blessing what you're doing. And I want you to get your heart right because God desires righteousness on the inside and he also requires righteousness on the outside. Both places are important to him. It's simply not enough to build his temple or to be involved in any kind of ministry activity without also desiring to be holy. Those of you who went to the DR, I'm glad you went to the DR. I went to the Ukraine. We did things that I think God is, His heart is into. But if we went and did that, with an unrighteous heart, then we did it wrong. I'm sorry. God requires righteousness. He requires holiness. And in that, He blesses. The Scripture bears that out in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it was critical for the nation who, again, do you sometimes feel like you're like the nation of Israel? I do with my like, man, are we ever going to learn? Am I ever going to learn? Am I ever going to learn? So here they are. They were sent away because of their disobedience and there was no confession, no brokenness over it. They've come back and there's no confession and no brokenness over it. Just getting involved in ministry and activity without the brokenness of our heart. So I want to close with this. God demands, and it's in 16 through 19, obedience. And he will bless or withhold his blessing According to it. So 16 through 18. Of Haggai. God speaks. And he says. How did you fare? You were putting stone upon stone. In the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20. There was but 10. When when one came to the, vine vat, the wine vat. To draw 50 measures. There were but 20. I struck you. And all the products of your toil. With blight. And with mildew. And with hell. Yet you. Did not turn to me, declares the Lord. So consider, listen what he says. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider this, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. Notice what he says, or look at the first part of 19. Wait, or the last part of 18. Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? He goes this. Now watch this. So they have laid the foundation. They laid the foundation of the temple. And they're got the altars going. They're making sacrifices. They're doing the stuff. And, and, and they're going. And then there's Samaritan opposition. And God says here, you did not come back and consecrate your heart to the work. You just came back and did the work. And I asked for obedience and, and brokenness and righteousness and holiness. That's why there's not a temple here. I brought judgment upon you through Nebuchadnezzar because of the unrighteousness of, your, of some of you and your fathers. And so now you're back, and you haven't come back to get the heart right. You're just doing the stuff. And so watch what he says there. Since you laid the foundation of the temple, go check out the barns. Have I blessed, or have I withheld blessing? You could go to the barn and you could see that I withheld blessing because something has been wrong in your heart. So he says, go and check each year. You barely have enough to get by. Probably having to borrow from neighbors and other family members. And so now the Jerusalem rains have come through. It's softened the ground. They have planted the seed and they could go out to where the trees were and in the fields and where the grapes grow. And they're wondering this. what? They're wondering this. Is it going to be like it was? The last 16 years. We're going to have more drought. We're going to have more trouble. And God says, I tell you what, if you'll consecrate your heart, then I'll bring the blessing. I'll bring the blessing. And so God demands obedience, and He will bless or withhold His blessing according to it. And this group had slipped into the wrong priorities, putting their own pleasure. And their own comfort ahead of God's kingdom. And they needed a priority adjustment. And so Haggai speaks in the midst of that. And it reminds them, this work is important. Jesus, the glory of God's going to be greater in this temple. So this is a holy work. I'm going to put my glory in this. Um, but you need to know this. I'm going to continue to withhold my blessing as you build this in your, on your crops and on the stuff that you're doing because your heart is not right. And so December the 18th, 520 B.C., they would be able to look back because what happened in the spring was guess what came? God's blessing came. They got their heart right. You can see later on in Ezra, they gathered in the courtyard, and he reads the law all day long. He came and gathered, and everybody stood. Watch this. In the rain they stood, in the rain, while Ezra read the law. And they got their heart right and they consecrated themselves and they got things in the right place. So let me close with a couple thoughts. Two really important principles I think should be noted as we close here. And the first one is simply this. God being first in our life is the most important thing that we can do. He must be the center of our lives. That was their issue. They came back and he was not the center of their lives. They didn't come back in brokenness. Um, In God's blessing comes from Him being our life and allowing Him to be the center in every part of our lives. And without God's blessing, I'll say this, our work is just filled with frustration. Just filled with frustration. Let me say this. About to get real honest in the room here. Some of us in the room may have struggled, struggled financially most of our lives and we've tithed and we wonder, does God bring blessing to tithing? Could it be possibly that we've been tithing, doing exactly what God says, and yet living a sinful life and God doesn't bless that? Doesn't mean that you're going to have lots of money in your bank account, doesn't mean that at all, it just means that it won't be such a struggle. And so him being the first priority in our lives is absolutely critical because God's blessing brings about the kind of results that are far different than anything we could plan, any kind of efforts that we would do, any kind of abilities, any kind of math. Do you remember one day in John 6, Jesus was out on a hillside and 5,000 men came, it's estimated maybe 10,000 people were there. And it's late in the day and it's time for supper. And Jesus turns to the apostles and says, hey, go get some food for these people. <laughs> and Andrew's like, and, or Philip. he turns to Philip and Philip's like, hello, Jesus. Uh, there ain't no Seven Eleven around here. There's no mini tacos down the road that you can go by. There's no slices of pizza. You know, there's no popcorn. There's no nothing we can feed these people. We can't, we can't do anything. Well, what do you got? Well, um, there's a little boy here. Smartest person among 10,000, little boy. He probably heard Jesus preach before knew that. Man, that guy preaches all day long. I'm bringing a lunch. And so he's brought a lunch. And they find it and they bring it. And watch this. They put it in Jesus' hands. And he blesses it. And it meets the needs of everybody. And I wonder what God might do in our lives, in our church's life, if we just simply in a broken heart just really gave our lives to him. Not in salvation, but in sanctification. And just yielded, just yielded, and just laid it down. And see, God does something in the math of things that is unlike anything, just like he did with the little boy in the loaves and the fish. Secondly, as we close this, God's blessing, listen to me, God's blessing is His presence. It's not necessarily material things. Now, I want to remind you of something. Guess who they're still living under as they consecrate their lives? Darius, he's a dictator. Guess who's living around them? Nations that hate them. So His blessing in our lives doesn't mean this, that things are just going to be smooth sailing for me. The blessing of God that God speaks about is His presence in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the slime, in the midst of the yuck of this life. It's His it's His presence that gives us the perspective on the things and so so God says get your heart right as you rebuild the temple great cause I want you to do this but your heart's got to be right and if you'll get your heart right I'm gonna bring blessing and he tells them there from this day on I will bless you and so he tells them and the indication there is they're gonna get their heart right with God the book of Ezra shows us that they do get their heart right. But God's blessing is His presence. It doesn't mean that, it, that you and I are going to be removed from all the struggles of this life. They are going to continue sometimes to remain. So when God says His blessing would come, it did not mean for them that every issue would continue to be gone. Because guess who was coming on the scene next? Greece. Guess who was coming after Greece? Rome. They were, were going to continue to live under the struggle of this life and under other nations coming in. And so there would still be struggles, and there will continue to be struggles in our lives even when we walk in holiness and righteousness. But the pure in heart see God, and they have a perspective on these things that cannot be seen without righteousness and holiness and purity and I tell you what I've just said here this truth goes against the popular thought of the day where people preach and teach that the blessing of God always means comfort and material blessing to come to those whose hearts are fully devoted to him and that's just not true there's a popular guy down I-45 who says you can have your best life now we are not going to have our best life now it's going to be in another life So if we're waiting for the best life to come now, um, you're going to wait until you breathe no more. Because what God has in store for us is beyond anything we could imagine in this life. So he tells the people, make me the centerpiece of your life. Get the temple up, build it in righteousness, walk in righteousness, and from this day on I'm going to bless that because I bless that. I will bless that. I will be a part of righteousness and holiness. And so as we close, I just want to remind us, we must never think that gospel-centered causes like orphans and widows and the poor and, and the homeless, though they are, gosh, God's, God's, God's into those things. Those things are near and dear to his heart. God, God's for justice. It's his nature that drives that. So we want to we we do that. We want to be a part of of seeing God um, move and rescue little girls out of the sex trade industry. We want to see that. But we want to share the gospel with those little girls as they get rescued. We want to share with the homeless person that there's a God who cares. And there are believers and churches who want to help see the restoration of that. And so we cannot ever think that no matter how grand the cause is, that if you do the cause without sharing the gospel, you're just doing man's work. And so the gospel has to drive everything. And that's what these people needed to do. They, 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 they weren't there yet. They didn't come back with a broken and contrite heart. They were doing a part of the great cause, but their heart wasn't right and they needed to get their heart right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing a song here in a moment. It's the song more of Jesus that we um, have been doing for a number of months over the last year now. And I want to ask you if you're like them. You've been busy, busy, busy for God. going on mission trips, whatever the case may be, and you're busy, busy, busy for Him, and all of the things you're connected with are really important, they're God-ordained, and they're God-things, but your heart has not been right. I want to encourage you today to get right. To get right. Why, 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 why let 1 o'clock come today without getting things right? Why not get right now, right now, right now, right now in this moment? Let's just say, God, I, I'm going to yield to you and I'm, I'm going to allow everything now in my life, I want it to be driven by a, go- a love of the gospel, sharing the love of God with the broken people of the world so that they will come to know him because that is their greatest need. It is their greatest need. So if you need to write that in your life today, would you do it in a moment? Come and kneel, kneel at your seat, whatever the case may be, but let's get our heart right. Y'all with me? I love you, church. I love you. This needs to be heard. This needs to be heard because God says there, listen, I bless this. I bless this, this kind of life. All right, let's pray.